Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He's an actor that has been featured in over 14 films. Welcome to the show, the amazing Chris Van Dam. Hello, sir. How are you, sir? No, call me Chris, please, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Man, thank you so much for taking time to do the show. I absolutely love the work you do, and there's a lot of very interesting things you also got coming up, so I'm really excited to dive into this. This is our chance to get into your origin story. I always like to start with people's origin story. So born in 87, California, but you have two very famous parents, Glass Portuguese, a famous bodybuilder, and a legendary action star Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know, you have a very unique perspective, I'd say. Not the average person growing up with their parents like a dentist or something like that. So what was it like for you growing up with such famous parents? Well, you know, it's a, by the way, great intro. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, hello to everybody out there. Thanks for checking in the Tom show. I'm happy to be a part of it, first of all. And yes, to answer your question, Tom, when you're a kid, you don't really realize much until you start to mature and grow and then you realize, oh, well, that's that. And my friends have parents who work regular jobs or parents who are in first responders, which I don't uh, see as a regular job. That's a very amazing job. Those guys are heroes and women are heroes. But, you know, on the screen and on TV and in magazines for more than 20, 30 years at that time, my parents were very well known, or at least 15 years at that time, you know, in the late 80s. But you start to realize things when you start hearing the news, when kids start bullying you at school about it or, you know, talking to you about it. And you start to mature and put two and two together and realize, oh, I'm not in a normal circle here. But I did learn a lot from both of them and I tried my best in my, as you know, I'm not a, you know, I don't do drugs, I don't party hard and all that stuff. So I try to stay out of the front lines of usually what celebrity kids go through. And I know quite a few of them. Yeah, and that's an interesting point because it is a very bad record, if you want to call it that, where you get these child actors as well. And they just hit all these bumps along the way. What do you think helped prevent you from falling into those, I guess, in this area, natural pitfalls? Well, thank God I, I tried an edible once years ago. And I realized uh, when I checked myself into the ER that if I do drugs, I'm fucked. So, okay. <laughs> uh, well, that would do it. Uh, you know, that's a small example for those out there in layman's terms. But, but really, um, having seen what it did to my father in the 90s and mm. seeing him, you know, climb his way back up, and he's come quite a far away in a, in, a, in a short period of time, believe it or not. A lot of people took more than 20 years, 30 years to come back. It made me realize uh, that I should not repeat the same mistakes. And he told me himself, you know, don't repeat what I've already done for you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, for him to come back from that is more admirable than just breaking into the level of fame he did. Yeah, he told me, you know, one day he told me, he said, Chris... If I if I had sorry for the seagull is my my co-star here. Yeah. Like, no, no, don't pass by. Good ambience, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very, very much. And they're they're actually sometimes you hear them they sound like uh, like dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, which they essentially are dinosaurs. But anyway. Um, so my father told me he said, you know, Chris, if I hadn't done what I done, I probably would not be alive still. And if I hadn't learned from them, I'd probably uh, have gotten worse. So because of his decisions, he learned the hard way in some corners. And, and through that, I've learned. And my parents were always very supportive of trying to you know, create an awareness with their kids about what and what not to do. 
Okay. In those awesome. terms. Also, I train, Tom. I train every day, and and sports. I've been doing martial arts since I was five, and many other different sports, including classical ballet. At twelve years of it, and 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 sports kept me grounded. I always listened to my grandfather and father and mother, who are all sportsmen. My father's father, and they told me, as long as you can lift a box until you're seventy, eighty years old, you know that's what matters. So. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's a great segue, too, because we do have a lot of listeners that like your films. They like, of course, training martial arts. Do you briefly kind of go into what martial arts you have trained and what got you into that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Shotokan was my primary form of martial arts uh, that I started. My father trained me since I was five. And then, of course, I went into Taekwondo, different academies, did some competitions in Shotokan and Taekwondo, all the way up until I was about 18, 20. And then I stopped competing around that time because I didn't like to fight anymore. I just wanted to practice the art and stay in shape. I never got into bodybuilding. My mother actually was training me for a period of time where I was very, very big. I never took any steroids, nor did my mother, nor did my father. All very uh, natural people. But I wanted to try bodybuilding for a little bit. I realized quickly with joint pain and the type of devotion it takes, it wasn't for me. And being a martial artist, it kind of slowed down my martial arts skills, my speed, my kick speed. And, and I didn't like this. So I wanted to go back to staying natural. I train naturally. Every morning, I, well, every day, I do 210 push-ups in sequences of 30. And I do the same with sit-ups and different types of abdominal workouts. A lot of calisthenics, shoulders, arms, everything at home as much as I can. And bar work, you know, like isometrics and calisthenics on the pull-up bars. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I, that's the thing I usually like to ask on the show too. Like, what does an average week look like for you? Whether it's, you know, martial arts training, fitness, uh, I suppose diet, nutrition, and also another good subject would be recovery. What do you like to do for recovery? So my my program is I like to isolate my muscle groups, but calisthenic speaking, calisthenically speaking, if that's even a word. Um, I should know that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Monday usually is chest, Tuesday is arms, Wednesday is legs, because the middle of the week. Thursday is severe abs, and uh, Friday's back. And then Saturday's rest, and Sunday's warm up. And what I do on top of those muscle groups is I always do my 210 push ups, my 210 shoulder rolls, and my 210 abdominals. Always, because core is very important, and shoulders are silhouette for acting. My father always told me that good shoulders make you look large on camera and it's very imposing if you play a villain. And chest and push-ups are a full-body workout and it's very good for your lungs, your respiratory system, opening up your thoracic cage, etc. So it's important to have a daily, in case you can't train, you at least have done it in the morning. So you have a consistency throughout your daily routine through the week. Oh, I love that. As for recovery, to answer your question... Recovery is extremely important. I think trying to do cold showers every day if you can are great. Uh, room temperature mm -hmm. to cold. And I take Saturdays and Sundays off. But Sundays, like I said, it's a warm-up day. So I just do push-ups, shoulders, and abs. And I do about 120 to 150 just to warm me up for the week coming. Now, if you have energy, uh, do the full 210. But you must do them in sequences of 10, 20, or 30 with about a three- to four-minute rest in between as intervals so your muscles have time to not create any lactic acid. You know? And as for diet... I love having a good beer, trust me. I, I love yeah, a right. beer, a good glass of whiskey. We all do. I mean, not all of us, but most of us do. Those who enjoy life do. And it's okay to have a drink. I just try to keep it on the weekends. I try to keep it on my Saturdays and Sundays, if anything, just Saturday. Got you. Yeah, I mean, you got to have a little living in there, right? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I know some guys, Tom, and it's crazy. I know some very amazing athletes, and they're always complaining about their water retention, their water retention. And I said, I think it's because either you're overtraining 
or you're stressed or you don't know exactly what foods to eat for your body type and it's all about your blood type your body type your bone density people just think you do a couple bicep curls to get big and you will but certain people have natural muscle tone have more red muscle volume than white muscle fiber so they need to eat and train according to let's say what a blood test would show from their doctor and i think the best thing to do is to stay as clean as possible have your carbs in the morning don't eat past eight o'clock at night so you don't have that slow sugar rush that's my big problems i like to have a snack at night put on some movies study some film and i try to eat cherry tomatoes you know i eat an omelet i try to stay lean and i sleep much better no meat past the late pm hours it causes nightmares and influx in the body as well as GERD if you suffer from acid reflux which I do as well because I love spicy foods and I get a lot of uh, 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 you know you got to try yeah. to avoid these type of things yeah they're important yeah for me it's coffee <laughs> yeah yeah I understand. I understand but I need it you know <laughs> I can tell how many uh, well especially in your line of work you got to stay up you got to do editing you got to be on time with stuff to deliver how many cups of coffee you drink a day, Tom? Uh, nothing crazy. I'll do like two cups, maybe four cups max. But for me, that's the one, you know, I, once I, I'm 42 now. So once I hit my like late thirties, my body's like, uh, we're going to do a little change here. But coffee, uh, try to uh, drink water in between if you can. It, mm. it helps, you know, it really helps think the crash and the heart rate and the size of your arteries as age grows, depending if you have any inheriting heart conditions in family, hopefully not hereditary. No, I'm good there, luckily. <laughs> good. I'll good. take that, yeah. No, good. And cardio, I usually try to do cardio three times a week, about 30 to 40 minutes. Thirty In between 30 and 40 is usually my go-to. Anything over that, yeah, you can enlarge the heart, unless that's what you want to do with cycling or swimming or right. something. But it's just good to keep it um, to keep it up and busy for your lungs, your pulmonary system, your know, circulatory system. Very important. Wow. This is such a great insight, brother. It's, I like it a lot. Um you know, the other thing too is obviously outside the physical aspects of your fitness, your martial arts, and the benefits of that are, are obvious, but, you know, mentally, especially going into your career, like how much does that help you just career-wise, mentally going into it, doing your fitness and your martial arts steady regimen? It's very important. I think that a very steady regimen and order in someone's life from waking up and making your bed to going to the gym, it creates a great foundation and it creates endorphins, believe it or not, and dopamine in the brain. And it balances your cortisol levels. You know, as much as, as working out is great, it's very important for men and women out there. Sex is very important if you're active. Yeah. It's very important. Don't forget that guy. It's a big workout. I know a lot of guys who are completely shredded and don't lift the weights or don't even do a pull-up and their sex life is great. <laughs> if, you know, being as straightforward as possible because a lot of people yeah. will talk about it online and, and they're scared mm. to, to say something wrong for their career, but that's all bullshit. You got you to say, say what's naturally built, not what society gave us, right? We created society, so we're the foundation. So basically, I think training is very good for my career. It eliminates depression. It's the natural drug, and it gives you exactly what your body needs. And there are days when your body will tell you, hey, man, I'm too tired. And, and you should listen to it. You should take that day off and then recycle another day for it. But if you do that and you listen to your body and you eat clean, but you also listen to what your body wants to eat. If your body wants dairy, eat some dairy, eat it clean. If your body wants some meat, find a source of protein your body wants. You will understand the language your body tells you. It's instinctual to each his own. So, but a good awareness of yourself and a good regime and a good diet and good focus, which helps good focus, really helped my career. Because, you know, being the son of someone very famous, like my father sometimes can take a, a big burden and a heavy uh, shadow. And it's hard because you, you find this great regime for yourself 
and all that is great. Yeah. And you're living within yourself, your four walls at home. But then as soon as you leave the door and you're exposed to society again, and you start to deal with people, it's a constant war because everything's about, you know, dad, 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 sometimes mom, but mostly dad, in my case. And it's a constant war upstairs of like this wave of dark depression saying, well, you know, you'll never be as successful or you'll never be successful in your own right like your father. And so I would just go eat some ice cream and sit on the sofa and watch Netflix and say, fuck it to life or go live oh, on an island. Wow. Man, man. <laughs> and I've, and I've, I've been through those dark spells. I've been through those spells because it's normal. You know, you want to make your parents proud, but then there's this whole world of society that they don't understand when you close the door that there's actually a life behind the camera, the silver screen. And this life will surprise you. But of course, we only talk about certain things out of respect for our families and privacy speaking. But, you know, we are normal people. We do have, we do butt heads. And there are politics in the family and within the career as well. And these are things that we have to bite down on and, and accept because if we don't, we're never going to grow and be successful. And you have to get over this very dark Voldemort. You have to beat the dark side, you know, and, yeah. and you have to come out the other end because otherwise you'll end up like a lot of the others oh, who yeah. have passed away. And they're great people. They're all every son and daughter of a celebrity that I met about, I would say, 95 to 98 percent of them are hypersensitive individuals, in fact, more than their parents. Wow. And it's hard because their parents, some of them try to push for them, some of them don't. You gotta give back. You yourself have to understand that you have to carry a torch. And it's not about doing splits, it's not about doing 360 kicks or, or you know, putting your bandana on your head and shooting a, uh, yeah. a, a big Gatling gun. It's about knowing what you wanna do and loving yourself and acknowledging that. And people will feel it, they will feel it because it's so yeah. real to you, it's gonna be real to the world. Just like it was for our fathers and mothers before us. Man, it's profound because it's so true. And also on that side of things, you're not just like being the child of someone famous doesn't necessarily mean you get all the perks. Can you kind of go into that aspect? Yes, of course. Uh, it's you're very, you're very right. Oh, that's the, uh, that's the number one thing is that a lot of people believe that because I'm, you know, the son of Jean-Claude Van Damme, that I'm going to get easy roles in film, that I'm going to get all the money that he has or we make or you know when I walk on a set whether my father's attached to the project or not and one reason why I'm very pissed off because this project now that I just finished in Bulgaria or at least half of it due to the production issues was put on pause it was my first project without him so I was very proud I worked oh, very no. hard yeah and there's other projects coming up with him which are great and I love to be a part of them of course because you know, we support the Van Damme lineage but that's not everything and I've really been trying to break out of the shell and I've been doing it in the most modest, humble way possible. And that is not to, you know, suck any moral you-know-what or be a snake and serpent around people and say something to make someone happy or sleep with someone. I've been offered all the drugs. I've been offered all the beds, all the nice hotels by women and men, and I've declined each one of them, Tom. And I tell you, and that's why I'm 36 and I'm still not on a billboard somewhere. And, I, and I've done probably close to 1,200 auditions in my life. I've done a lot. And uh, people don't know this, but I don't need to brag about it. I don't need to boast about it. I'll talk about it on a show, but I try to make people aware of this because, you know, it's good to be normified 
I have a day job in California at LA that I chose to have at a friend's motorcycle shop. I trade mechanic for motorcycles and, and I, I do it to keep myself grounded. Yeah, yeah. Just to keep myself grounded because it's very, you get lost in this industry, man. And I also do it to support my friend's shop, but it's important not to let the baggage hold you down, man. It really is. You got to love yourself. You got to find what you want to do in life and you have to stick to your guns no matter how long it takes. Man, I love that too. Cause I mean, that's the reality of it. And I love that about you specifically, too, because you're a very level-headed guy on this whole Thanks. perspective. And I do see you going, yeah, for the art of it, the love of it. When did you realize, I mean, obviously, yeah, your dad, Jean-Claude Van Damme, doing movies and being such a star. But when did you personally realize, hey, this is what I want to do with my life? Right away. Wow. Wow. Right away. And I'm blessed because everyone in my family is in film, part my mother. She was here and there in film in the 80s and was almost an alien, <laughs> but yeah. she didn't want to shave her. Her, all her hair off, she's uh, going to ask her to shave oh, her hair really? off. She said, no, no, I can't. Wow. Uh, but we're all in film, and my wife's a concerto pianist, musician. So we're all in the entertainment industry. But as soon as I saw my dad's first movie, uh, well, as soon as I saw a movie of his, one of his first films as a child, I knew that I wanted to be like him. But I didn't think about the fame. I was too young to think about, you know, the repercussions of fame and all this. I just knew that this thing with a camera and a set and people and being on set, I wanted to direct. I wanted to make movies. I wanted to be wow. in a movie. I wanted to do the best I could with what I had. And that's what I'm still trying to do. And my brother and I are great. I mean, we read some fantastic material. We're very yeah. talented writers. And I don't like to boast our home, but we are. And we want to market ourselves as the, well, we are marketing ourselves as the Dan Bros, uh, kind of like the Cohen brothers in a sense. So the Doofer brothers or... The, uh, I think it was with the Fauci brothers uh, who did Uncut Gems. Fauci, I forget their their names. But anyway, the point you. is, yeah, they're great. But these are the type of the thing we want to do. And we believe that it's so different and so real to the Van Damme name that we can take it, mold it, make it our own, and then fly with it. But I knew from very young with my Polaroid cameras and my toys in the, in the backyard that I was just taking storyboard shots of them. Uh, to make shots, grew up with Steve Spielberg's movies and stuff. I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And there's nothing else I will ever do in my life. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's a good point as well. Because, yeah, you and your bro, I do know you guys write a lot of scripts are like been ready to go. It's amazing that movies, TV shows get created at all, man. It's, <laughs> I mean, do you guys have some things in the lineup that you're looking to get started more than others? Yes, of course. We have... Uh, two or three that are that are being in discussion right now it's just hard to find finance people want uh, a guarantee that our father's attached you know here comes that name again but what we did smartly was my brother and I we have a very uh, different directing style it's not action movies it's not your typical thriller we're very artistic but we keep things very raw and real and it's our own it's our own comedic style within a real story and full of heart and ambitions and a roller coaster of emotions so what we do is we assign because our father's become a very good actor with age we assign mm. a role to him for him to choose between two, three characters he can play. So we custom write different roles. And we have some friends in the industry that want to be a part of our films because, and they're older people. They're in their 60s, 70s. People like Vladimir Kulik from 13th Warrior. I mean, these guys are theater actors, you know, thespians, and they love our material. It's just these guys don't bank. And our father banked. So, you know, and it's, it's difficult because uh, he's so busy to get him to sign something is, is hard because then it, it hinders other scripts. So we're trying our best way to market things before, maybe shoot a short to show it. And, you know, we need a good DP. So we're always constantly working, searching. But luckily, on this TV show I was working on, I met a great director from Bulgaria. He's actually the top build director in Bulgaria. His name is Martin Makariev. 
and him and I hit it off just like my brother and I hit it off on a daily basis. And awesome. right now, yeah, right now we're working on a, a Western project that I wrote with my father back in 2017 that we're rewriting right now because the writer we hired was great, but we wanted to make it more real, less popcorn, and it's becoming such a great Western script that will probably for sure star myself alongside my two siblings and my father and some other cast names with Martin directing. So this is one of the next projects. It's called, people know it as Three Coyotes, but we're doing a title change right now. And I can't mention over the phone at the same at the time. Oh, right okay, now, so. yeah. Yeah, that's awesome <laughs> news. It's such an amazing concept too. I love seeing that full story. Like you're growing up, your parents are famous, start getting in movies, you come around full circle, writing and creating on this thing that they're going to potentially be in there's something real romantic about that, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And the great thing is, is that the more you suffer in your regular life, thanks to all the ups and downs in life, if you embrace them, ladies and gentlemen, you can apply that to your craft. And that's what my brother and I do. We've been through a lot of shit with our father and the industry, and yeah. we still are standing strong. And we're still back on our feet. And uh, yeah, the, the media may say something, but we're here doing our thing. And if you don't hear about us, it's usually a good thing. And if you hear about us, it's usually a good thing. So we do our best to try to stay as neutral as possible, but productively so. It's good to use the energy instead of hurting yourself with it. You know, all the yeah. ups and downs and the negative times. Put it into your work, whether it's gardening, writing scripts, directing, acting. And that's what I've been doing my best of because that's the only way, I think, you can make something so real on paper and on the screen is by doing this. And then you become a pioneer. People say, oh, we never knew. Oh, they're able to, to get so deep. And that's because we've taken our pain, which is part of life. And instead yeah. of burying it under the sand, you take it, you expose it to the world. You basically strip naked emotionally and you show them what you can do and what you can give. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how my father did it before me. And if people only knew his father's life, he would be three times a movie star than my father ever was. But because he's not, we only know Jean-Claude Van Damme as the first of the first, which is fine, but he has his inspirations as well. We all come from something. You know, we all come from something. Yeah. That's people tend to forget this. Very true. Very true. And, I, you know, that's the other thing with the media. They can benefit. They can also harm. Part of my language, but they can be so fucking negative and honing on that. Or even if you go on social media, you see all the comments or something but there's that one asshole uh, <laughs> so you know so is that something you guys do because again people don't think about that because they're kind of in the crowd and not in front of the crowd in front of the camera so to speak is that something that you mentally stay healthy with media and just all the bullshit to keep you grounded just focus on you focus on what you're creating on yes the media sells negativity sells by far more than positivity it always has because people are interested in other people's worries and problems because they want to hide their own usually that's the psychological approach that's the that's the common go-to with people yeah. oh I, i've got so many problems i'm bankrupt my wife's cheating on me my husband's cheating on me i don't know what the hell uh, i've got this disease god bless those who do um i need to put my ventilation on something i'm going to turn on something negative to not think about myself and my problems and usually that's why they put the magazines at the checkout kiosks in the markets and you know it, it sells everything's everything's built to sell positivity is short-lived and it's sad because positivity is innovative Positivity is where you find the fuel for pioneering. And through positivity is where you find inspiration for yourself. And if you don't have 
inspiration through others and to accept instead of being jealous of someone else to accept that inspiration that it comes from that person you can do something similar or like my father inspired millions of people across the globe to do martial arts as did billy wallace before him bill wallace these steps of evolution are bruce lee to bill wallace to my father to all those other guys after him scott atkins and the rest of them and, and each one has their own thing and they've embraced it but it's important not to try to copy someone. It's great to try to be like oh. someone until you find your groove. If you try to copy someone and be exactly like that person, first of all, it'll never happen because you cannot repeat the truth twice. You can only repeat the truth once. Wow. And yeah. it's true, you know. Look, my father saw Lawrence of Arabia for the first time on the big screen when he was a kid. And he said, I want to do this. Just like Steven Spielberg saw Lawrence of Arabia and he said, this is what I want to do, but it's too big. I'll never do it. But he kept going for it. And I just watched his documentary last night or the night before. It was great. But anyway, it's important to take the media and look at it like uh, these people. They're just trying to make a living and they're doing it the most incorrect way. So the best thing to do for those out there who don't know how to handle the media and the pressure of people is to just say, be neutral. Because they can never get anything on you if you're neutral. I love what Daniel Radcliffe did where he wore the same wardrobe for six months so the paparazzis couldn't post the same photos. <laughs> great. And I and I love this because that's something I would do and I wouldn't even, you know, like flip them off or try to fight them in the street like most of the TMZ nonsense is full about. But I just, you know, these people are trying to make a living, but it's not on my vibration. So you just kind of play with them gently. They'll know. They'll know. That's really great. You know, and also being on set, you know, I mean, you, I believe like one of the very first things you did it was like a universal soldier you play like the young it's uncredited, but like a young version of your dad, but you're on set. So, and obviously going to the quest, so on and so forth. When you're starting out, insanely young age, do you remember what that was like? Is that where you're just even more so kind of like, this is my atmosphere. This is me. Yeah, man. The, I, I, I hung out at the village, uh, video village, hours at a time on Unisol 1. And it was great to be a part of two or three of them. It was awesome. But Roland Emmerich is wonderful. I remember my first take ever on a movie set was on this film and it was 91 1990 91 my sister was just born just about to be born wow. and they put me with this rock rally and i ran you know down this slight decline with a long lens and i ran past the camera into my dad's arms and he told me you're going to be a star one day and my father wow. told me this and i remember this i never forgot this and i tried to stay as clean as possible on my path to what we call stardom but i'm not in it for the success i'm in it for the expression of my purpose which means as a filmmaker, as a director, people have no idea of my directing style because I've never directed anything that made it to the silver screen. Yeah, my brother and I have done some little stupid YouTube skits here and there, but that has nothing to do with that. You can't compare. And that was during a pandemic lockdown. So, I mean, pandemic lockdown. We can talk about that, but that's another podcast. Yeah, that's right. a whole other podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's quite old news now. But anyway, it's funny how things so big can be old so fast. But yeah. um, the point is, is I've always knew that on set that I know that one day I'm going to be probably an old man, whether I'm successful in the eyes of people or not, that I will die on set very, very old. And that's my dream is to die on set because that's what I love doing, Tom. I, I can travel anywhere in the world and I can be on a set for a year. I won't be bored, not a single day. And I'll somehow have more energy than I ever did. When you don't work as an actor, especially now I'm, I'm in a bit of a emotional rut because for mm -hmm. four months we were working on this TV series. And oh, right, because yeah. Of, yeah, because of stupidity, and it's a 1930s gangster piece set in Mexico City, and it's so cool. It's oh, so badass. That sounds awesome. It's really cool when I play one of the sons of the main 
antagonist, and then he passes away, and I take over his empire, and it's a war between three families in Mexico City, and I'm one of the leads of that guy's family. And great character, first time, great role with great makeup, good lighting, great director, Martin, and they hired some bullshit director who messed up episodes one and two. But anyway, the point is, it really hurts when you leave a character, whether you finish the movie or not, because you're so into it. And I'm a method actor. I consider myself to be somewhat method. And I like to basically dive into the role, be devoted to the role, turn off my phone or anything, stay in the role, know my co-stars, don't see people I don't need to see for the sake of on camera when you see them for the first time. It's the first time you see them, people feel it, the audience feels it. I really believe in this because you're basically tricking your co-stars who are either method or not, and you're really giving the truth to the audience. So what I'm trying to say is at the end of the day, it's hard to leave a production whether it's successful or not. And I'm most happy when I'm on set. Yeah, I mean, that's your space. That's your dream. But that was the other thing, too, is I love hearing stories. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a specific. I mean, something specific pops in your head. Please go into like behind the scenes. But being on set, being on set, there's a lot of lessons learned. Where are some big takeaways as you're coming up through your career? What were some of the biggest lessons you learned while on set? Timing. Timing Mm. and preparation. Oh, okay. Um, Timing and preparation is very important. If you're not prepared for a movie and you're, it's your first time directing, you should be a year in advance prepared, two years even, for this film. You should know your film in and out. You should have read the script a hundred times. You need to know your script so you can lead your crew because as a director, you're on set and these people that have way more experience than you are looking at you. Wait, grips and gaffers, the very blood, soul, sweat, tears of the film are all staring at you and they're saying, what now, sir? And you're there like, okay, I know what I have here. But how do I implement it here? You have to be comfortable here. You have to have a great DP to support you. Someone of, I think, more experience, a higher, uh, older age, who can guide you, has no ego, who loves his craft for what it is, like, like yourself, and just tackle the project and make a great fucking movie. And this is how good projects are made, when people are understanding this process from the start. Also, hiring actors that are fun to work with. They may not be the best choice, but... They're fun to work with, and they're more pliable. They're, they're like warm clay, so you can mold oh. them because they have less of an ego. But some actors, they're so hard to work with, Tom, that it messes up the production because they cause these scenes. They're like old petrified wood, and it's because they have problems, but all they do is they vent on others. They don't fix the problems, and they come on set, and they use their only segue to expressing their problems is through their success and their vanity that, you know, I'm this, I'm that, and you should be listening to me, and I've done 100 movies, and all that's great and respectable, but you can't use that as a weapon. You gotta, I, yeah. I mean, there's some there's some thespians out there, like Anthony Hopkins, who comes on set and is just silent and listens to any director he's been assigned to. He has so much respect for the filmmaking process. Daniel Day-Lewis is another one. I mean, these are guys, he's my favorite actor, these are guys that you can't, there's no competition with them, it's just craft. And they understand what it takes to love the craft. And they'll do it for a dollar. They'll do it for a million dollars or more. They'll do it for whatever price because they love the role. They love their craft. And they'll die doing what they love. That's it, you know. I think mistakes on set come from ego and come from ignorance most of the time. Yeah. And what you said, like with Anthony Hopkins and Danny Day-Lewis, like it comes across as well. Like this guy would do this for free if he had to. The craft of it. Or like what you do. And we talked a little earlier about your martial arts. I believe it was Kill Em All. You had an amazing fight scene in the hallway there. What's it like as far as that scene, for example, like fight scenes? Like get that choreography down. Is it kind of like a dance? You mentioned like a little ballet earlier, which by the way, people really sleep on ballet. It's got such an amazing workout and it gives you grace as well. 
Oh, yes. It gives you core strength. It gives you grace. It gives you an understanding of emotion. If you're all bottled up and as hard as petrified wood or a rock, which is fine to be at times, but not always, it's wonderful for the soul. Ballet helped my martial arts. In fact, my father did it as well. He was accepted into the Royal Academy of Ballet in Paris wow, that in level. the 70s. Yeah, that level. Late seven, I think mid or late 70s. And he declined because he wanted to continue martial arts and go into movies. But yeah, it's helped my martial arts a lot, ballet. And doing the fight scene with my father in Kill em All, or any fight scene really, there's a uh, genetic understanding. Like my father would say something or just, you know, move his arms a certain way. And I would understand what he means without him speaking a word. And that's just the, the DNA, which is great. But the fight scene was actually very short. We had to stretch the edit because we had an original edit on Kill em All 1. And for some reason, and I still don't know why to this day, they didn't use it. And it was an amazing edit. I mean, the shootout with Daniel Bernard in the beginning was so real. It felt more real than John Wick. Is It was so raw and so real. And my father's a fantastic editor. I mean, when he was editing Universal Soldier, the editor on Universal Soldier, I believe, was the same editor from Tower of Inferno. And that's an Academy Award editor. And he said to my mother, he said, if this man does anything apart from acting, he should be an editor because he's so talented. And my father created the hype of the double... You know, the double cut where you have like an explosion once, explosion twice, explosion three times, and then, you know, he's in front of it flying in the air. Or the cross face hit three times, different angles, boom, 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 oh, boom, yes, boom. Yes. And, yeah, he started that with the Moviola machine in the 80s, and no one was doing wow. it before him. And when Bloodsport first came out, it was a flop, so he begged again to edit the movie, and he did. They, they gave him grace, and it huge success. So... Going back to the Kill em All thing, we stretched that fight. You can see there's a lot of repeated shots, like as if I'm doing 12 kicks in the fucking hallway, you know, like 12, yeah, yeah. Uh, four roundhouses. And they're almost ballet-like because of my grace and my ballet for years. Yeah. But the choreography came very fast. We were doing a location scout, and we chose a hallway that we didn't shoot in, but we rehearsed in that hallway. And my father said, uh, okay, throw two kicks here, and I threw two kicks there. And I said, I can do a third one. He said, you can do a third one? I said, yeah. He said, good. So we went one, two, three, perfect. So we're going to do middle, low, high, I think it was. So we did one, two, three, one, two, three. And then we did a couple of roundhouses while traveling forward. And his double was a good friend of mine, which was a surprise to me when I arrived on set. is Emilian DeFalgo. He's a very good friend of mine. And he was in, I think, Boyka or Boyko or something with Scott Atkins. Great guy, oh, yeah. French guy. And he doubles my father from time to time. The chest double wasn't so good. That's his chest. Emilian has a massive chest. My father and me have very flat martial arts chests. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, you know, fiber-driven chests uh, yeah. from a lot of push-ups. Because when you do a lot of boxing and martial arts, you never get big. You get very, like, wide and, and lean. But anyway, it was a fun time. It was, very, it was actually, I think, one of the easiest things to shoot in the movie was because uh, he's got all the experience. He knows where to put the camera. He can hold all the camera, put a low angle, make him look taller. All these secrets, trick of the trade as much as you can well having a master wide so you can cut to it to show no bullshit and strings attached is important yeah uh, he's the guy man i mean him jackie chan Sylvester Stallone, these guys they know where to put the goddamn camera because they've done yeah. it so many times that, through mistakes they've learned you know in the errors of their ways but it's good that's it that's amazing and editing's its own monster man especially doing this it's oh, yeah. and what it's the saying too it's like you got the script and then the second version of the script technically is you shoot it and then the yep. third thing is the edit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. You got it. You can even redirect the film while editing it a certain way. You know, you uh, can redirect it. What was that transition like for you, by the way, when you picked up the pen and paper or took out your computer? It started getting to the writing director mind side of things. You know, the, the thing is, Tom, I've always been more of a director than I have an actor. And I just love acting the boutique roles, like the Boba Fett's of movies or the Darth Maul's of movies. And, you know, the guy who speaks less 
has a lot of meaning and has its own purpose for whatever it's driven in the story. Not the main guy. I hate playing the hero. I hate getting the girl, kissing the girl, and, living, and winning the day. And I've been told so many times by so many managers and agents that I've had over the years that, hey, you have a leading man face. You can be a leading man. I said, I'd love to be a leading man. But if the leading man is like Steve McQueen, Sand Pebbles, then yeah. Then Because yeah. now the character has a problem. He doesn't talk much. There's, there's more acting than not talking. And I love less dialogue because it forces you as an actor to think before delivery. And if you look at Daniel Day-Lewis, in most of his work, I study him a lot. I actually, I only study him, really, and I shouldn't, but I do because I just have such admiration for the man. Before he delivers a line, he thinks about what he's going to say as the character would think about what is happening in his life at the time. And if you look at There Will Be Blood, there's a scene on the beach when he's realizing that this guy next to him is not his brother. And the shot's on him. It's a profile shot like this. And he's doing this thing with his lips where he's thinking, and it's anger trying to go out, but he's controlling it from himself from erupting because he erupts later on the guy and kills him. And so there's this this tense buildup to this. And I love that because no dialogue and we understand what the hell is going on. You have all these scripts I read, these low budgets, and they're so pathetically written, Tom, because Mm. the people believe they have to explain to people what's going on. But 90% of the time in Generation Z, the people are on their phone while watching a movie. It's it's disgraceful. Very rare do you find people who are glued to the screen like myself, and I'm sure you and many people alike are listening here, you know, wow, this movie... Did you see that? Did you catch that? Wait, go back 10 seconds. Watch it again. Oh, my God, I didn't catch it. Thanks for stopping and telling me. That's what movie's about. And a movie is not entertainment. A movie is, is detective work. You have to be a detective and also be entertained that you discovered what we're trying to show you through an artistic style. That's it. That's what a movie is. It's an entertainment for you to engage with. That's why 40 movies that are well done are so entertaining because you feel it at the same time you're watching it. But if we don't have 40 movies, it should be like a 40 movie, period. You should feel like you're in the space. And that's a good director, good actors, good production value, good writing. All that comes in together as a happy marriage. That's you know? so interesting. Yeah, when you're watching something, I love the way you word that with detective work because that's what makes it a rich screenshot or a rich dialogue delivered is that the little nuances. And it should be thought-provoking. Whether I'm being cognizant yeah. or not, it should not just evoke feeling, but it should be like I should be have something to chew on, so to speak. Yes, and also believe that this guy is not who he says he is, but he ends up being someone completely different. You never knew what he'd be. Or if it's a mystery, you're trying to figure out who's who, and the way it's directed can kind of guide you down that path of mystery. But through the acting and the little nuances of style and and emotion, we can stretch the suspense so much more. It's like, in my directing style, I like to keep the camera behind or very close to the character who's vulnerable. Why? Because as soon as we cut to the close-up or we turn our backs to whatever the character is afraid of, we are then exposed to that fear, and we feel like we're on the side of the exposed monster behind the closet, so to speak, in layman's terms. We don't know what's behind the corridor. But then you cut, like in World War Z, when they cut, when he's in the hospital in England looking for the cure, the vial, and we have these shots where we're so close to the zombies chasing him down that you lose instinctually 70% of the fear. But when you're with him, and, and, and we're backtracking with him, and you see them around the corner three, four seconds behind him, that's scary because you're not close to the zombies. You're not close to them. You're not breathing with them. You're not running with them. You're not on their side. You're on the side of Brad Pitt trying to escape or the people trying to escape. You need to be around that corner with him. You cannot cut around the corner before he comes because how can the audience be around the corner 
before the character goes around the corner if we're following that character right. story. You're cheating. You're cheating the suspense, and you're breaking it. You're cutting its knees off. And that's something that does not work in terms of suspense for me. I love suspense in movies. Even if the movie is not a suspenseful movie, even if it's a love story, I love suspense. Because suspense yeah. builds mystery and forces you to be on the edge of your seat and think. And if you notice, when people are in a cinema, you put suspenseful music any movie it is, you put suspenseful music. You can change the music for the movie anyway. You put suspenseful music, and someone's on their phone, they're going to look up even for a brief second because that is what people are missing in their lives is suspense. Society provides everything for us. We can see everything around us. It's all very easy and relaxed. We're very happy here. But as soon as the lights go off and you're by yourself, you're right. You're looking for someone to hold their hand or at least survive with. And I'm yeah. not talking about a horror movie. I'm talking about human instinct. So you have to apply human instinct in directing. And that's what I like to do in my directing styles. There's a constant load of heaviness. And I think that comes from my past and having gone through a lot of ups and downs within myself. I've discovered my style. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier about embracing what we've learned through awareness. So it's all a marriage. Your life is a constant learning where you have to take certain things off the spoke of the wheel and remember them. Because there are things presented to you in your life in all of our lives, that guide us forward. And if you take it, you're going to skip 20 years of suffering. But you have to acknowledge it. You have to be okay with it, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Amazing side thinking with that. And for you, I mean, you're a real student of film. What have been some of the most influential or inspiring filmmakers to you? Like who's in your top list, so to speak? Um, I would say uh, Akira Kurosawa is my favorite. Oh, yeah. Uh, Seven Samurai and all the others he did, amazing. And of course, I mean, he was the grandfather of cinema and wide shot suspense and long lens like uh, Sergio Leone took his style, adopted it and applied it to Westerns and Europeans did Westerns better than Americans in right. in Spain. <laughs> you know, spaghetti Westerns were great. I love Akira Kurosawa and I love Robert Zemeckis. Oh, yeah. And my other guy was Thomas Anderson who did There Will Be Blood. I think it's Thomas. Yeah. I, and he also did Phantom Thread. He's a phenomenal. He knows how to tell a story without any dialogue. He knows how to lay the camera and explain something. And he's so aesthetically sound and, and so smooth. He's like a Rolls Royce. It's amazing. Wow, those are definitely good recommendations right there for anybody <laughs> who wanted to see some good. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. There's there's a lot. Each one is each one is special. I just I love that style of taking time. There's something about stretching something. It's like in life when you you had a great day at the beach, for example, here. You have a great day, and then you go home, and you thought about home maybe two or three times during the day, saying, oh, I'm going to be home tonight. I'm going to be home tonight. I'm going to be home tonight. And then you're home, and you're like, wow, why did I think about being home? It went by so fast. So in cinema, you have to kind of stretch the heat of the moment, because in cinema, you can rewind. You can live that moment over and over and over. So if you stretch it, it always feels like you have something new to discover in the movie. And in life, you can't go back in time. So you have to really enjoy what you have in the moment. And to stretch the moment, I think, cinematically is fantastic. Like when you look at the view and you have music in your ears and you're saying, wow, it's just like a movie. That's cinema. That's cinema. You know? Wow. Wow. And through your eyes. I mean, people get so stuck in their daily rut, daily schedule, daily whatever. But that's an amazing takeaway, too. Because I think that not just for cinema, yeah, right? That applies to all walks of life that really can just look outside and it's all around you. I love that. I think so. And it's sad that a lot of people get stuck in their daily rut. I, for one, sometimes do as well. We all do. But you have to try to realize that nothing happens the speed of thought. You know, you think of something, you got to get something done, but you're not the only person in the world who can do it. You don't have clearance everywhere to do it. So you have to kind of wait. But while you wait, know that it's going to get done. Love yourself and take those 30 seconds 
of doing something you usually don't do during the day. Maybe go to the park you love, always tell yourself you're going to go to, or turn on a movie you said you're going to watch the last 20 years, or read a book you said you wanted to read for the last 40 years. You know, do something in that meantime, and all of a sudden, other door within yourself is going to open, and you're going to forget about your problems because you realize that this is your soul telling you what you need. Whether it's eating a candy bar all the way to reading a book, it doesn't matter. Do that thing, and within that time frame, you'll realize that all your problems will be fixed because you already fixed them in your head. You realize that there's more to just your daily rut because society now, Tom, is so yeah. saturated. Yeah. It's so saturated with stuff and worries and fear-based elements that we forget who we are. And it's so important, whether through meditation or passion projects, do that. You got to find yourself again because rediscovering yourself is so important. It's what we're yeah. here for. If we take away the cameras and lights, all the buildings, the money, all we have left is ourselves and our thoughts and the time we have with ourselves and those loved ones around us cherish them because man does it go by in a blink brother i'm 36 now i was 25 yesterday yeah right it's it goes so fast and that's such an amazing takeaway for everybody listening is that aspect and really enjoy it and live it like truly live it because people are so like so desensitized yeah that they're not really and living they, yeah they're, and you know everybody has the problems and and we have to understand them it's some people, and it's like me with this project. There was a time in my life, Tom, where I was very, I'm not a perfect guy. There was a time in my life where I wasn't training much. I was just training two, three times a week. I was drinking every day. I was riding my motorcycle like a jackass in Los Angeles. I was single bachelor doing crazy stuff and no drugs, no crazy stuff like this. Just not caring about myself, living life in a one directional manner, but not caring about myself. And it took an effect on me. In my life, I've had my moments, my dark moments, you know, where I would go to the bar. And I met Jonathan Taylor Thomas one night, actually, at a bar. And I actually had a fist fight with him. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. years ago. I was going to the same bar a lot in my dark time. And at this bar, it was a great place. I met Jonathan Taylor Thomas. And we had a little altercation inside and outside of the bar. We had an altercation, let's just say that. Yeah. And it didn't end up well for one of us. And when I saw him the next day, I felt ten times worse because... I saw the pain in the guy's eyes and I was blinded by my anger, my own stuff, but this guy's older than me. And I realized that I was no different. And so hmm. when I saw him and I had a conversation again, he didn't recognize me from the night before, two nights before, which was because he drank. He's one of those guys that clicks when he drinks. And wow. I felt very, very, very sad for him. And I felt bad about what we had done. And I realized, damn it, I am no different than this guy right now. And I choose not to be like this. And that was one of the last times that I ever went drinking out during the week and during the day. I, it was a very bad time in my lifetime. I, I was an alcoholic for a while. And so I quit it. I got back to the gym. I lost like 10 pounds of water retention and, wow. and started doing martial arts again. Yeah, it was a lot of, just a lot of shit in my life. And I decided to accept who I was, love myself, and try to pursue and find the kid again inside me that was lost, that was trying to reach out from inside the purity inside me that I had that started to click for directing, that loves film. So I just put on movies and I stayed by myself for, for a year, two years, and I stayed celibate for a long time. Didn't see any girls, didn't want to. Um, and then again, I met some very toxic people as time went, but I was more prepared. But still, through them, I learned more about myself, had very bad relationships, with very toxic people who were not good for me, but I guess I had to go through it. Mm -hmm. to, to realize who I was 
and then I met my wife, and now things are starting to come back. It's amazing. You meet the right person, you get on the right track, you start to rediscover yourself, and yeah. um, it's a beautiful process. It really is. So, so for those listening, you know, me being the son of you know a multi-millionaire action star, <laughs> yeah. it's not as easy as you think, but all that shit doesn't matter because he was once a guy just like us, and he made it. And he did his thing, and he made his mistakes. He's got ups and downs. He's a great person. He's got a heart of gold, amazing spirit, just like my mother, amazing people, and his parents before him and her parents before her. But we have to forget what society depicts people as and tell yourself what you depict yourself as and, and try to show that to society because maybe you guys out there could be the cure to a lot of things, You know, whether it's through film, writing, your podcast, Tom, um, meeting people who have so much to share with the world. I mean, there are people out there you could interview that – could help change thousands, millions of viewers on your channel. Oh, for sure. That's another thing. When I started doing this, I love about that is you start hearing the side of things. Because now the people would have listened to that moment you talked about with the fight. Some people would have just dove right back into it. So you had the, you know, you listened to whatever that was, that call. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a crazy, it's a crazy evening. <laughs> a crazy evening. And it was funny because there were only three people in the bar Tuesday night. And I remember I was standing in and out after because I was completely hammered and I got on my motorcycle I only had one glove I was holding my helmet and a girl one of those LA go party girls was like in front of me in line to order a double double you know and uh, <laughs> and she starts hyperventilating because she was squeamish I don't know and she looks down she's like oh my god someone's bleeding and I and I looked and, said, what the fuck? and there was a trail of blood like dripping blood all the way to my bike in, in and out because they have the white floors, you know. And so I looked at my hand and it was full of blood. My whole arm was full of blood. I was like, what the? F-? I don't even know how I cut my nail or something, but I had no tears. So I don't know what happened. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's all good. But things happen. Things happen. And through those things, we become better people. But it's up to you to become a better person. So there's a lot of ups and downs, but you have to embrace them. They're part of your life. It's- I love the different mindset of it. I remember um, Behind Closed Doors, the documentary oh. with your dad, which was phenomenal. I love stuff like that because we want to see the behind the scenes. Like say martial arts, everybody sees the guy in the Olympics on the podium with the gold medal, but you don't see all the, the losses he had and the demons he had to go through. And I love seeing that because real. And there was one scene, it's such a silly scene, but it sticks with me to this day when I think you were in a car with him and he wants music to get like revved up, some energy. And he puts on classical music, some orchestral music. You know, most people would do like some high energy music or some rock and roll or metal or something like this. But he's like, no, this is, and he's getting into it. And you're sitting there like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because at that time I would have put on some 80s music, you know, Uh, or some cinematic scores. I like cinematic scores to train to. There's a lot of great scores out there. But my father now, in my older age, I realize what he meant by opera. My father is a very hypersensitive individual, and i become more hypersensitive with age. But he's like this calcified diamond in the rough that was once a diamond and is now full of calcification and, and different iron ore and all this type of stuff caking his surface. And he's constantly trying to break it off. But he's hardened, basically, in his life. But he still has that diamond interior, and that's where that classical music comes from, oh. in a sense. You know, he's very, very core-driven. And sometimes he doesn't know how to adapt to society. And it's difficult. I'm the same. Sometimes I have a hard time. Just I drive around town on my motorcycle and I don't know where to stop to have a coffee because I don't want to engage with people. And uh, Yeah, hey, I'm the same way, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because I don't like people. 
there's a lot of beautiful people out there, and I'm sure there's many listening here. It's myself, and I need to figure out why. And usually it comes from a self-love place. When you love yourself yeah. and you're confident, that goes away immediately. When you have problems and you're not happy, you think people know about your problems, but they don't. No one knows about your problems. I'm sitting here on the beach. I've got 101 problems, but Joe and Schmo over here on the boardwalk. And, you know, we have to just kind of live in this moment, like we talked about earlier, and enjoy that moment because the problems, they will dissipate. But yes, society, it's important to be social. My grandmother always told me, my father's mother said, it, you need to be social, especially in your line of work as a director. And there's a lot of directors like Ridley Scott that I've understood. I mean, I don't know if it's a true thing or not, but my father worked with his production company, David Zucker and everything, on John Van Johnson mm-hmm. a few years back, some years back. And he directs from his trailer, apparently, with like eight monitors, you know? Oh. Yeah, because he could focus in there. And, you know, it's like back in the 90s when I was doing my CPDS tests, so CTVS, yeah, CTVS, they had to put me, <laughs> so funny, they put me, they cut cardboard boxes, TV boxes, big, you know, back TV from the 90s boxes, and they would tape them together and wrap me in them with a little door, caution this side up, and I would sit inside, oh, and I asked for I asked for a roof, and I aced all my tests when I was in that box. I aced them. But outside of the box, couldn't do it. It's just weird. Yeah, but now I'm a little better. It's just people go through these things, and it's a constant life is throwing things at you to learn about yourself. You have to embrace the problem and try to fix it. It's the only way. If you keep brushing under the carpet, you'll be 80 years old with 25 cats. Not that that's a problem, but maybe a couple birds. But yeah. the thing is, is that really the life you want to live? You know, do you want to be a hermit? Some people like it. And you know what? Hey, if it helps them, more power to them. Go for it. If it's what they want, you got to follow your heart. And I love that. It sounds like a t-shirt, you know, live the life you want to live. Whatever <laughs> road that is, it, it doesn't, no one ever said be easy, but live the life you want to live. Kind of as in closing here, I had just two more questions for you. One, because we talked about music for a second there. When you're working out, are you a type of guy that likes music on, no music on? If you do, what do you like in the background? You did mention a little bit with film scores, things like that. Usually I like music. and I like epic music because I feel like I'm a character in a movie and I, oh, I know yeah. that this health is good for me and it's part of that epic emotion moment. But sometimes, especially when I'm deep in thought or I have to focus on dialogue or something. I like to have no music or just very ambient sounds and just breathe and listen to my breathing. Even putting noise canceling headphones like these on and listening to whatever is inside the bucket on each side, that's sometimes very helpful. And training to this is great. But sometimes I get the feeling like I'm claustrophobic if I don't have music and I'm very claustrophobic. I hate small oh, spaces. Okay. I, I haven't taken elevators since I was 21, I think. I'm oh, wow, really? Yeah, that's... Yeah, and it's crazy. My father loves high-rise apartments, you know, and on, <laughs> behind closed doors, we had a high-rise in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So we, I would walk 41 flights every day with all my animation paper because I was in animation school at the time. Oh. Um, I studied 2D animation six years. I worked. I didn't know that. Three years awesome. Yeah, yeah. Three years working, six years, three years studying, three years working, and I still do it. I still do it. I have a bunch of little animation pieces I'm trying to do something with, with my friends. Oh, that's and awesome. And learning... Yeah, yeah, it's a real passion hobby of mine, just like motorcycles, is animation. And I think that in my career, I'm going to do a lot of animation in my future with directing. But yeah, you guys can follow me on that. I'm going to try to get some stuff up and running soon. But to go back to the claustrophobia is something that when I put this noise-canceling headphones on, it almost feels like I'm floating when I'm walking because the ears are part of the balance. And when you take this out, you get a different sensation in the brain. But you can focus on training. So it's a cool little hybrid. You just got to be prepared for it if you're hypersensitive, yeah. 
<laughs> have you ever done any uh like deprivation tank kind of setups no never never have tried mm. i don't know if i'd be able to but because it's in closed space right yeah basically yeah like they close the lid you're in water or something or? yeah you're like in salt water so you're floating yes it's really like everything kind of your body's so relaxed everything turns off apparently it's supposed to be very therapeutic and I don't know, but I think some people that might be <laughs> might be the opposite result is I'm too in my own head. I don't want <laughs> <laughs> you see the, the people who are so in their head, they have the effect that this does for you already. I think when I went through my edible experience, I only had one edible mm -hmm. in my life and I, I'll never do it again. I told a doctor about it, a psychological doctor, also medical doctor. He's a bit of both. And he said, you know, Chris, the emotion you get from that, it usually means that you are already at a level that people need to take these substances to get at either to focus to get at they have it they don't they don't have it but people who are hypersensitive already have a level of intensity in there or their thought process is so quick that their body reacts to the vibrations of their brain and their body's trying to keep up and it's a very strange almost not handicapped place knock on some wood it's a place of control and when you don't have immediate control of your body you get extreme anxiety so you have to try to be relaxed and over relaxing can cause anxiety he said the worst you can do is drink a couple beers, tighten your main arteries, your tubes, for a few hours, and then go to sleep nice and wake up happy. And I said, I think that's what I'll do now. I'll probably stick to Saturdays only. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm constantly in that state of creative sensitivity. And I think that's why I get anxiety quicker than most people. Because sometimes people are like, you know, chilling all day and I have to move. Yeah. I have to do something because I'm feeling like I'm, oh, I got I to gotta go run the beach. I got I to gotta do something. And it's just the way... I am. I've always been like this, and my father's like this too. He always has to constantly move, constantly work out. I'm always doing push-ups in the sand here. I'm doing my push-ups. Wife is sun tanning, and I'm doing push-ups. And then we're going to train tonight at the gym together. So it's a constant flow of movement, and it relaxes me. So I guess training is, in a sense, my drug. <laughs> yeah, or it's drug, or it's very meditative, honestly. Like it's just physical. Extremely, extremely. Action yes. meditation, yeah. Absolutely, Tom. It tra training is meditation, and without it, once you start it and you pass that bar, you know, with martial arts, same deal. Once you pass that bar of consistency, your body craves it and your mind craves it and your soul craves it. And that's where it's beautiful. That, that trifecta is, there's nothing like it in the world. You could jump from an airplane, but you'll still go to the gym tomorrow and you'll still want to do your one-hour session and your sparring and your cold plunge and sauna. You still want your regime. And a regime, again, like I said, wake up in the morning, take your time, sit in bed for five minutes. Get up, stretch a little bit here and there. Don't just get up very fast, even if you're late. Take mm -hmm. your time. Time moves fast if you take it slow in the reverse. It's very strange how it works. Mm -hmm. If you're relaxed, you, you somehow find the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it just finds it for you if you don't ever think about it. That's amazing, man. Last question here is, we talked a little bit about it, but what are your future goals? What does the future hold? So we talked about writing and film. I just mentioned something about some animation as well. What's your future goals? Future goals are to make movies with my brother and my family and great people alike and do my best to have a name out there that can deliver some great dreams for people to liberate through. I want to create movies so people can go to the cinema knowing they're going to see a movie that's going to make them feel good or make them feel horrible in a good way because that's what the story might be. Right. So, you know, if the story is a heavy story, well, you know, you're going to leave with a lot of heartache and sadness, but then we've done our job. But, of course, to find the right balance is key to leave the theater knowing that you can dream as well and escape and there's a place beyond just our two-eyed plane spiritually speaking that i can deliver to you through my purpose in life my craft being cinema and that's my goal in life 
I love that. That's an amazing way to end it. Chris, thank, thank you. you so much for taking time to do show. Man, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and getting your mindset on things. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, sir. I'll keep in touch. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it so much. You rock. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.